Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. In the early days of brainstorming who to invite to the podcast table, who would be willing to bring a different view of reading the Bible, I thought about scientists. In fact, I'd love to have a long, extended conversation with several scientists at the same time. I have so many questions for them, not only about science and faith, but also about their own experience as scientists within a faith community. I assume it's not easy, but I don't necessarily know why. So I was so pleased when this week's guest accepted the invitation to talk about some of these matters with me. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Deborah Harzma. She is the president of Biologos and an astronomer. So conversations about God and the universe, yes, please. Biologos is an organization that invites people to see the harmony between science and biblical faith, even within an evolutionary understanding of God's creation. And they explicitly state, and this is really important, that conversations among Christians about controversial issues of science and faith can and must be conducted with humility, grace, honesty, and compassion. And you'll see, this is exactly what Dr. Harzma will exhibit in this conversation. Before we get to the trickier issues, I asked Dr. Harzma to explain a bit about her growing up years. And when did science and faith start to blend or conflict in her mind? I'll answer you mostly from the faith side of things first, and then we can get to the science side. I grew up in uh, the Evangelical Free Church denomination. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's around here in the upper Midwest a lot. And it was a wonderful church, very Bible forward, very evangelistic emphasis, loving. It wasn't too dysfunctional <laughs> and I uh, had a, a great Christian home. And that's where I really learned the scriptures, all those Sunday school classes, all the sermons. The pastor, when I was growing up, had the three-point sermons. I remember... When I was in middle school, it was a long sermon series on Romans and other long ones on Corinthians. And I would take notes because, you know, I was a bookish kid and stuff. So I was really absorbing a lot of Bible knowledge and growing in my personal faith as well. So I remember when we switched from the New American Standard Bible version to the NIV, New International Version. Oh, the disruption. Yeah, I know. Some of the adults are like, oh, no, we like the older one. But I was like, oh, this is easier to read. And I went to a Christian college, uh, Bethel University in Minnesota. And there, I remember the uh, Bible course I took. And that's where they really emphasize sort of the big story. That's what I usually refer to, the creation, fall, redemption. What is God doing with humanity in large scope? And that's where, you know, several things sort of came together for me. Okay, that's the big picture. And so I really like that. I think somewhere around there, I picked up the book called, I think it was Fee and Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Oh, yep. Yeah. Where I started learning more about like, okay, that original context stuff, that's really where you have to start if you're going to interpret the Bible well. So yeah, that's kind of how my upbringing influenced my reading of the Bible. 
at what point did you realize that you had a scientific brain, that you were really going to start <laughs> specializing in science, that physics was the thing that really just grabbed your attention? How early mm-hmm. on in life did that happen? Oh, very early. So my dad played math games with us and I was in I don't know, for second, third grade around that time. And so I loved math and science. I loved everything in school, but I was really interested in the math and science part. Thought for a while I'd go into chemistry because I had a great chemistry teacher in high school. But then in college, chemistry was like, you know, there's not enough math. I really liked math. (laughs) But then in math class, there wasn't enough science. There wasn't like enough tying it to the real world. And so physics was the sweet spot for me. Lots of math, but that tie of how physics describes what's going on in the real world just captivated me. So I was a freshman in physics class and, you know, you're going along and each week you do an experiment in the lab and you follow these recipe in the book, you know, do step one, two, three. And then one week, the prof says, okay, this week, you're going to design your own experiment. And we're like, really? Okay. So we have this equipment lying around at the table and we have to try to figure out what are we going to measure? What are we going to do? And we finally figured something out. Okay. And then we laboriously are going through the textbook, trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to calculate? But eventually we calculated it and we measured it and it matched, which we were hoping it would. Okay. Yeah, but still, right. why, why should that even match? Why should these calculations in the book, these equations describe anything going on in this real world of balls moving around and planets moving around? And that it does is really amazing. There's a famous essay by uh, Eugene Wigner, a Nobel Prize winner, called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Why should mathematics describe the world? And yeah. that's, you know, to me as a Christian, that clearly pointed to God. Mm. And so when we're doing physics, we're studying the handiwork of God and thinking God's thoughts after him, as Johannes Kepler said. Mm -hmm. When did you focus down onto astronomy? In the last lecture that you gave that I was able to hear, I think you were talking about galaxy clusters and the curvature of space, which Mm -hmm. is mind boggling and so delightful and beautiful. But what drew you to that? (laughs) Well, a lot of kids grow up just fascinated looking at the stars. Yeah. And that was never me. I'm not a very outdoorsy person and I would try and I would get a lot of bug bites and then decide not to do that anymore. But when I got so interested in physics, the chance to see what physics was going on out in the universe, because there's such extremes out there that you just can't reproduce on earth. You have the intense gravity of a black hole or the intense magnetic fields around a neutron star, or these huge structures that are hundreds of thousands of light years. And what happens in space when you have one hydrogen atom in a cubic meter of space? Like, how does that even behave? And so I found all of that quite interesting. So the chance to do physics in in space was what uh, really intrigued me. And then after I got my PhD and started teaching astronomy, that's when I actually learned the constellations. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) That is, yes. (laughs) I love that little tidbit. (laughs) But I do enjoy the night sky. I, you know, I still have a habit in any time I walk outdoors, I look up and like, yep, there's the moon, the star, the planets. Yep. I got them all there. There they all are. So, um, but I didn't learn it till quite late. Was there any point in, I mean, you went to Bethel, so there was a Christian environment in which you were 
looking at physics. And so there's a Christian environment and a Christian mindset, but you didn't stay at Bethel and you went into some like amazing schools after that. And is there, was there ever a sense or a time when what you were puzzling through in mathematical formulas, what the formulas were telling you about what was going on in the curvature of the universe came into conflict with what you thought you knew about faith and what you thought you knew that the Bible was saying? Yes. Uh, It actually started happening much earlier. So as an elementary kid, my dad and my uncle brought all of us kids to some uh, young earth creationist conferences. There, there was one Saturday workshop that I remember. And as a kid, I thought it was great because we were talking about science and the Bible at the same time. But I certainly picked up the idea that evolution was a bad word. So then I get to 10th grade biology class and we're paging along in the textbook and okay, here's this evolution section coming up. And it's kind of with trepidation, like, I don't know, I know I'm this is going to be threatening to my faith, right? But we have to read it. So I'm starting to read it and like, oh, that kind of makes sense, which then confused me. And I brought it home to my dad and we talked it over. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table going back and forth, like, okay, we've heard these young earth arguments. Here's what this textbook is saying, like, what's going on? And he finally kind of sat back and said, I don't know. And in that moment, I was like, really? It's okay to not know? And I guess I kind of expected that he would say, well, as Christians, we believe this, and you're going to have to tell your teacher that they're wrong or something. But he said, I don't know. And it didn't seem to threaten his faith to say that he didn't know something, which also was just really formative for me. And I promptly shelved the whole issue of origins and Genesis and evolution all through college, didn't really think about it, just thought about physics. So then it wasn't until graduate school when I started digging into it, when I got this fascination about the universe, like, okay, I can't put this off any longer. I have to figure out what I think about the age of the universe and interpretation of Genesis 1. But you know what? I got involved in an intervarsity group, Graduate Christian Fellowship, and got connected with uh, some books. And one of the books was Portraits of Creation. And this is an anthology. It has Christian astronomers, Christian geologists talking about how they understood the evidence for age, which really helped because then I knew it was a Christian telling me the scientific evidence didn't have some atheist spin on it. And then there's a chapter by John Stack. He's a Old Testament scholar at Calvin Seminary, who I, I don't know if I ever heard him speak or anything, but reading that chapter, and he explained this ancient cultural context for Genesis 1. And now we're getting into your area, yeah. but like, whoa, I I had no idea all of those years of listening to sermons, all of my Christian college education, I never got realized how different their conception of the physical world around them was back then. Mm-hmm. They viewed the earth as flat and they pictured this solid dome in the sky with an ocean of water above it. And God didn't try to tell them otherwise in Genesis 1. And that really helped me kind of sort it out and say, okay, if God was revealing a lot to them, but he didn't try to change their understanding of of the science. He went with that. God takes credit for creating that firmament on day two. And so I kind of decided if God wasn't putting scientific information into Genesis 1, I shouldn't be trying to get scientific information out of Genesis 1. But I could only get there by thinking about that original context. 
Because what I didn't want to do was use science to decide which parts of the Bible were true or not, because that just isn't right. And I wanted to have a more, a really consistent, robust way of understanding all of scripture and realizing it goes back to the original context, wherever, whatever passage it is, was the key for me. It is amazing that your dad saying that simple phrase, I don't know, like what long-term effect that had, because you didn't want science to point to what was right and wrong in the Bible, but that's what we often do, or the church has done is, mm-hmm. you know, made this dichotomy. And yeah, what is it? I mean, this is actually a really big question, but speaking to a scientist who's an academic and a Christian, when I look backwards in history, I see so many very, very influential Christians who were scientists and mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, is there a way to bring our podcast audience quickly up to speed on what happened to make the church flinch against scientists as opposed to embracing them as one of their own? Or is that too big of a question to ask you? to? Do? Well, I, I can give a quick sketch. And since I'm not a historian of science, I will just gloss over lots of things, but I can give you a quick feel for it. There's a lot on this on the Biologus website, actually. So if listeners want to know more, then go to biologus.org and see a lot. But yeah, those early scientists it wasn't just that they were embedded in Christian culture and their writings, they would talk about their faith and about scripture and what it meant to them personally. And they're uh, developing the Christian virtues like Robert Boyle did. One of the first challenges was the geological evidence for the age of the earth. And those early geologists did a lot of thinking about Genesis one. They were Christian geologists going out there and discovering, Oh, they went with the assumption that there would be a global flood and a young earth and found the evidence that it was not, and then came back and were in conversation about interpretation of Genesis. And then you have Darwin in 1859 with Origin of the Species. And there the reaction was mixed. There were quite a few Christian leaders who actually accepted evolution and were integrating it into their faith. A lot of the theologians at Princeton Seminary were champions of that. And of course, a lot of people had a lot of problems with it. Evolution is just hard to understand on a gut level. It's such a long time scale and so counterintuitive. So, I mean, that alone would make just anybody sort of flinch at evolution. But then the implication that, what, I'm related to that smelly chimpanzee? That's not right. That's That can't fit with the biblical view of humanity. That takes a lot for people to get used to. So I think those are some really reasonable concerns people have. Then you have in the early 1900s, The Fundamentals, that collection of essays that gave rise to the fundamentalist movement. And you would think that would be filled with young earth creationism. And actually, it's not so much. There is a a little bit in there, but there's also some acceptance of evolution. It wasn't, didn't really get going, but that was written in response to a lot of the higher criticism of scripture going on and some of the things in the liberal church, like, okay, what's our grounding in the authority of scripture? So there was this dichotomy getting set up. Then by around 1960, you have the Genesis Flood. That book came out by Henry Morris, and that really launched the modern young earth movement. So it was not until then that most Christians felt that the earth had to be 6,000 years old. It was just not that important of a point. And many thought the earth was much older, but it was really then that that got going. 
And then you see just more and more anti-science rhetoric building up in the church. And in recent years, that's just translated into anti-science in a lot of areas, which is really sad to see. And I have to also mention, though, that it's not on the other side, you have the rise of the atheists in the 20th century and their dismissal of God and religion, often in the name of science, saying, oh, science shows that religion is irrelevant and that there is no God and God is a delusion. Well, that's going to, every any person in the pew knows that's wrong, but they hear a scientist saying it and saying that science shows it. They're like, well, science must be wrong because I know there is a God. So yeah, now we have to kind of rebuild this and help people understand, well, science can't answer those big kind of questions. It's really good at like planets and gases and black holes. It can do that kind of stuff, but it can't do God and meaning and purpose and human significance. That's always really hard is looking at the limits or the nature of faith, the limits of scientific inquiry, where these two things come together and where they can't come together. And I think those are really hard. Uh, you mentioned BioLogos and uh, you are the president of BioLogos. Well, let's talk about yes. that organization and what it is that you are trying to do because it kind of brings together these the nature of faith and the scientific inquiry and what they can yeah. and cannot do. Yeah, that's been a, a big focus of what we've done. So BioLogos was founded in 2009 by Francis Collins. He is one of the world's top biologists. He led the Human Genome Project. He led the National Institutes of Health. During the pandemic, he was a leader in developing these vaccines that were safe and effective. And he's been very open about his Christian faith. And the thing is, he's not the only one. There are a lot of scientists who are people of deep Christian faith. So we feature a lot of those voices at BioLogos. And we talk about the issues. We love engaging the questions and bringing together where is the scientific evidence actually really solid, separating that from where is it scientific speculation and where is it some worldview add-on? And then what are the scriptures actually saying? Where's the deep theology of the Christian church? Where have theologians always disagreed? Where do they agree? And bringing those into conversation with each other. And we aim to do it in a spirit of gracious dialogue. It's... I, you know, when we launched in 2009, in the aughts, the, the big thing in the news was intelligent design and young earth creationism and textbooks. But in the years since, that has really kind of faded from the public consciousness. But the bigger need is still there. People are still seeing this big divide between faith and science bigger than ever. And in our polarized world where they're trying to put people are proactively, aggressively polarized, trying to assign every single question to one side or the other. And somehow religion has ended up on one side and science on the other. And that just breaks my heart because they go together so beautifully and richly. So you go into churches and into religious environments to talk about science, and then you go into scientific environments to actually talk about faith. What is your experience of those two different audiences? Is one more challenging than the other? <laughs> Some people are more challenging than other people. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I have met people all across the spectrum of all different views in science and faith, some of whom are very gracious and warm and curious and interested in conversation, and others who are just dead certain you're wrong and uh, want to have an argument. So... 
whoever I'm talking to, I look for these points of commonality. And uh, with people of faith, I always talk about my faith first and share my love for God's creation and my love for the scriptures. And eventually we get around to talking about some of the points of tension. And with scientists, I start by talking about science and eventually share some more about my faith and what that means to me. But so, yeah, that's how you have, have to have these conversations. But boy, is it frustrating when people don't want to have a conversation yeah. and they just want to argue. And everybody's experienced that in the last few years, you know, yeah. had friends and relatives, you've known for a long time, all of a sudden you're like, wow, we can't even talk to each other. So. Yeah. We have all had that experience these past few years, sadly enough. Maybe we can have classes on curiosity, humility, and conversation. What if we could stop being rigid and be curious? I long for that in conversation. You probably do too if you are a longtime listener of Context Matters. Speaking of which, you do know, right, that it is my Patreon team that makes sure that these kinds of conversations keep happening. I so greatly appreciate people like David and Michelle Kaufman and Bob Lundberg. They financially support this podcast. And the benefit to you is that each episode remains ad-free. You are always welcome to join this amazing team if you like. There is a link to my Patreon page in the episode notes. I produced the episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really good to be with you. And I look forward to our conversation next week when Dr. Harzma and I are going to talk about if scientists feel welcomed in faith communities. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.